Hey, podcast fans, it's Lainey from Crimes of Passion. Did you know I host another podcast? It's called True Crime Cases with Lainey, and it takes a deeper look at the life and crimes of some of the most evil minds in history. If you enjoy the in-depth research and storytelling of Crimes of Passion, you'll love True Crime Cases with Lainey. Hey, we may even have a special guest stop by from time to time. Follow True Crime Cases with Lainey wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicidal ideation, violence, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. A slight chill hung in the early summer air as Art Costas drove home from a Little League banquet with his wife and son. It had been a great day, exactly the family outing he needed. But when he turned onto their street, there was a shocking flash of emergency lights. Police and paramedics blocked the driveway to Art's house. In the back of the ambulance was the sight of a familiar mop of brown hair. His daughter, Kirsten. It's possible that for a second, everything around him seemed to freeze in place. As the ambulance door slammed shut and the sirens blared, reality came crashing back. Art raced to his car and followed the ambulance to the hospital, hoping against hope that his daughter was still alive. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, in a one-part episode, we'll meet Bernadette Prodi, a teenager desperate to fit in. When the popular girl at school, Kirsten Costas, won't give Bernadette the time of day, she's stung by the rejection. Eventually, the consequences throw an entire town into chaos. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. 
Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. The 1980s were all about money, honey. The era of Reaganomics promised Americans that wealth would trickle down to benefit everyone. While most families were left waiting for their cut, the upper classes lived the high life. And when the yuppies, young urban professionals, started settling down, they took their status symbols to the suburbs, places like Orinda, California. Nestled in the Berkeley Hills, Arenda was full of picturesque homes along manicured streets. Its residents were mostly high-powered executives and stay-at-home parents. Practically every other car was a Mercedes or BMW, and the standard uniform of Izod polos and topsiders was everywhere. To the town's residents, looking the part was key to belonging. The pressure to conform was inescapable. And no one knew that better than 14-year-old Bernadette Prati. Unlike the other high-powered executive dads in town, Bernadette's father was older. He was retired and supported a family of eight with his pension. The Prattis lived a comfortable, if a little less than extravagant life. In a land of BMWs, they drove an old Ford Pinto. Their modest house near the country club was dwarfed by the oak-lined estate surrounding it. Bernadette had everything she needed, but there was barely any money left over. Unlike many of her classmates, she couldn't afford regular trips to the mall or salon. Her clothes came from the right brands, but they weren't new. She did what she could with her hair, but the style was never trendy enough. In the past, she'd attended private Catholic schools where conforming had been easy. But in 1982, her freshman year of high school, she transferred to Miramonte High. And as she walked the halls of her new campus, it might have felt like she'd moved to a whole new planet. The students drove better cars than the teachers. Walking the halls was like stepping into the pages of a designer catalog. Right from the beginning, Bernadette felt like she didn't belong. She may not have looked exactly the part, with her dated clothes and flat hair, but after years of living in Orinda, she learned how to use her personality to win people over. She was cute, but unassuming, and quickly became known for her kindness. She used her reputation as the nice girl to become friends with some of the popular kids. And before long, she'd worked her way into the fringes of the cool clique. She clearly wasn't a threat, so the girls let her hang around. From her position on the outskirts, Bernadette got an up-close look at what life was like for the It Girls. They seemed to have it so easy, practically gliding through the halls, and no one embodied that untouchable aura, quite like Kirsten Costas. Her father, Art, was an executive for the multinational conglomerate 3M. He brought home more than enough money, so her mom, Barrett, took care of the house and raised the kids. Growing up, 
Kirsten had access to all the perks Arinda had to offer. She belonged to all the right social clubs, wore the newest clothes and the freshest hairstyles. Not to mention she'd won the genetic lottery, with naturally brown hair and perpetually tanned skin. She was gifted athletically too. Kirsten made the varsity swim team and secured a coveted spot on the cheer squad. Excellence came to her naturally. Then there was Bernadette. In her freshman year, she also went out for swim and cheer. She made the teams, but no one would have called her a standout athlete. Scraping by was the story of her life. Though she'd managed to find a foothold among the cool kids, it seems she never really felt like she belonged. It's possible she always felt in danger of slipping down the social mountain. Now, you won't find imposter syndrome in the DSM-5, but it's more than just a buzzword. It's a recognized phenomenon in which a person constantly doubts their abilities and can't accept their success. They feel like frauds and constantly fear that anyone around them knows it too. According to journalist Kirsten Weir, that ever-present fear can be a lot worse for those who actually do differ from their peers. Being of a different race, gender, or in Bernadette's case, economic status from one's peers can make feelings associated with imposter syndrome worse. As badly as Bernadette wanted to belong, it seems she couldn't make herself believe that she did. To make matters worse, she saw how Kirsten and the other cool girls treated those outside of their social circle. They made snide remarks about out-of-season clothes and flat hair. It was possible they said the same things behind her back, especially Kirsten. Because no one seemed to trigger feelings of inadequacy like Kirsten. According to one of Miramonte High's resident rebels at the time, Nancy Kane, Kirsten was the queen of the withering glance and snotty remark. The rejection seemed to make Bernadette more desperate to prove herself. It was a nasty cycle that only worsened when she became a sophomore. In the winter of 1983, one of the popular girls invited Bernadette on a group trip to her family's cabin in Lake Tahoe. To Bernadette, it was probably a big deal, like a really big deal. Everyone knew you couldn't go to Tahoe in the winter without hitting the slopes, so skis were an obvious requirement. Bernadette eyed the other's shiny top-of-the-line equipment. Her stuff was clearly borrowed hand-me-downs, faded and scuffed by time and use. But just as she was finally starting to relax and enjoy herself, Kirsten made a condescending quip about Bernadette's stuff. She shrunk in embarrassment as the other girls giggled, looking at her pitifully. And that was pretty much how things went for anyone Kirsten didn't seem to care about. She would knock them down a peg or two. She seemed to be the only person who refused to play nice. Still, she couldn't give up. The end of sophomore year brought several make-or-break moments. First was cheerleading tryouts. Bernadette practiced around the clock, but only made it as far as the final 12 before being cut. Kirsten, on the other hand, sailed through and easily secured her spot for the next year. Unfortunately, the disappointments only kept coming. Bernadette didn't make the cut for yearbook staff either. 
She could feel the social progress she'd made slipping through her fingers. There was only one thing left that could save her from total social destruction. An invitation to the exclusive social club, the Bob O'Links. If she secured a spot, maybe Kirsten would accept her. So, Bernadette was determined to do whatever it took. Coming up, Bernadette devises a risky plan to win Kirsten's approval. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. The Bobolinks, also known as the Bobbies, was Miramonte High's equivalent to a sorority. The group's official mission was raising money for the Mount Diablo Rehabilitation Center. Unofficially, it was an elite social club. Only the creme de la creme were invited to join. The Bobbies represented the richest, the prettiest, and the most popular. In June of 1984, Every sophomore girl at Miramonte High waited anxiously to find out if they'd received a much-coveted invitation. On the morning the invites went out, Bernadette must have been ecstatic when she opened her locker and an envelope slipped out. She picked up the pristine package, hardly able to believe it. Her prayers had been answered. She was going to be a Bobby. Finally, it was her turn. She couldn't wait to tell the others who'd already received their invitations. Given the criteria for membership, we don't know for sure how Bernadette made the cut. It's possible she skated by on her public association with the in-crowd. Whatever the reason, she was a Bobby, whether anyone else believed it or not. A few days later, on June 8th, the new recruits were summoned to a classroom after school for their initiation test. There, the current members were waiting behind a table with a strange assortment of items laid out in front of them. There were eggs and mayonnaise, along with some horrendously ugly old clothes the new recruits were asked to bring in. Bernadette's heart thudded in her chest. Even Kirsten looked nervous as the newbies were given their instructions. The girls were told to rub the eggs and mayo into their hair before donning the terrible outfits. Then, they had to go out to the corner to sell kisses for a dime. One by one, the girls endured the humiliation, and in the end, they were welcomed to the Bobby ranks. Even though they were both covered in gunk and dressed in rags, Bernadette probably still felt like she was below Kirsten. 
Becoming a Bobby was the ultimate sign that Bernadette had made it socially, but it still wasn't enough. Bernadette wanted more. It seemed that she needed Kirsten to like her, to be her friend. Maybe if she could talk to Kirsten one-on-one, -on -one, she could prove she was worthy. There was just one problem. It was the end of the school year, and the chances they'd see each other in the summer were slim to none. She could wait until September when school was back in session, but to the 15-year-old, three months must have felt like a lifetime. If she had to wait much longer, she'd probably lose her mind. Yet she was apparently too scared to just call Kirsten and ask to hang out. She needed a plan. Bernadette knew Kirsten was away at cheer camp for part of the break, and she used the opportunity to set her plan in motion. On June 21st, the night before Kirsten came home, she called the Costas residence. When Kirsten's mother Barrett answered, Bernadette's heart fluttered. She took a deep breath to calm her nerves before rehearsing her story. Without giving her name, she told Barrett that the Bobbies were having a special dinner for new initiates that Saturday. If Barrett could make sure that Kirsten was ready, she'd come by and pick her up at 9 p.m. Barrett asked what Kirsten should wear. The voice on the other end of the line responded, Something nice. Part one of Bernadette's plan had gone off without a hitch. Unfortunately, that was the easy part. She still had to wait two more excruciating days to have what might have seemed like the most important conversation of her entire life. When Saturday night finally came, Bernadette pulled up outside the Costas' home in her family's beat-up pinto. Every house on the block was impeccably landscaped with lush green lawns and vibrant flower beds. Bernadette knew her old car stuck out like a sore thumb, which may have only made her more nervous. While she waited, she looked around the ugly old car. Its exterior was offensive enough, and she didn't want to give Kirsten anything else to harp on. It was a good thing, too, because her sister had left a 12-inch kitchen knife on the passenger side floor. Bernadette hid it behind the front seats just as Kirsten came bounding out of her house. After a week of cheer, she was even more tanned than usual. Her brown curls bounced around her shoulders, perfectly peppy, just like the rest of her. If Bernadette felt a sting of jealousy, she quickly shook it away. She was there to win Kirsten over. She needed to be cool. Kirsten slowed down as she approached the unfamiliar vehicle. She looked through the window and could barely hide her surprise at seeing Bernadette behind the wheel. Trying to stay positive, Bernadette gestured to her. Kirsten climbed inside and Bernadette took off before she could change her mind. Eventually, Kirsten asked where they were going. When Bernadette told her there wasn't really a dinner for the Bobbies, Kirsten gave her a biting glare. Rushing to smooth things over, Bernadette said she'd made it up because she wanted to take Kirsten to a party. At this, Kirsten looked shocked. If they were going to a party, Kirsten said, they had to make a stop first. This time, it was Bernadette's turn to be confused. Kirsten directed her to park in an abandoned church lot. Without the headlights or rumble of the engine, the night was dark and silent around them. 
This was Bernadette's chance to say what she needed to say. Her heart pounded in her chest so hard she was sure Kirsten could hear it too. But Kirsten was distracted, rummaging through her purse for something. According to court testimony, Bernadette was stunned when Kirsten produced a joint. She apparently wanted to smoke it before going to the party. Bernadette said no thanks, to which Kirsten rolled her eyes, obviously irritated. So far, not so good. Before the night could get much further off track, Bernadette might have launched into the speech she'd probably been practicing for days. Bernadette just wanted them to be friends. If Kirsten would give her a chance, she knew she'd eventually feel the same. Whether or not Bernadette got far in her speech, Kirsten wasn't interested. Eventually, Kirsten told Bernadette she was weird and hopped out of the car, heading off down a nearby street. It was so much worse than anything Bernadette had imagined. Panic rose up in her chest. Kirsten was going to tell everyone. She couldn't let that happen. She had to fix it. Her hands shook as she restarted the Pinto and sped after Kirsten. She caught up just in time to see Kirsten step into an unfamiliar home. She stopped across the street and waited. Meanwhile, inside, Kirsten told the home's owner, 35-year-old Alex Arnold, that the girl she was with had freaked her out. She asked to use his phone to call her parents. The last thing Alex expected when he answered the door at nearly 10 p.m. was a scared teenage girl. But he wasn't about to send her back into the night alone. She made her call and no one answered. He tried asking about what had happened, but she said she didn't want to talk about it. He offered her a ride home, which Kirsten gratefully accepted. As he pulled out of his driveway, Alex noticed the old Pinto. Sometime later, he checked the rearview mirror. There it was again. He told Kirsten it looked like they were being followed. She shrugged and said not to worry about it. Behind them, Bernadette's mind was a storm of emotions. She was still terrified of the damage Kirsten would do to her reputation, and the more she thought about it, the angrier she got. Everything was just so unfair. Kirsten had it all. Looks, brains, talent, popularity. And yet, she was going to take what little Bernadette had away from her. All it would take was one phone call for everyone to know how weird Bernadette Prodi was. She'd be a pariah. Social rejection is a much bigger deal than most people think. The need to belong and have healthy relationships is hardwired into us. In a 2011 study, psychologist Dr. C. Nathan DeWall found that along with increased feelings of anger and depression, social rejection also led to more aggression and less impulse control. Preventing rejection can feel like a matter of life or death, which was exactly how Bernadette seemed to have felt it. She believed that if Kirsten talked, her life would effectively be over. Finally, the two cars turned onto the Costa Street, but instead of getting out at her house, Kirsten went next door to her neighbors. Bernadette couldn't let her get to that door. Without thinking, she grabbed the knife from the back seat. Racing across the grass, Bernadette called out to Kirsten. 
When she caught up, she begged Kirsten to let her explain, but Kirsten wasn't having it. She shouted for Bernadette to leave her alone. She called Bernadette weird again and asked her to leave her alone, yelling loud enough for the entire neighborhood to hear. At this point, Bernadette might have gotten frustrated. Like always, Kirsten wasn't listening. She didn't seem to care about Bernadette or her feelings. Memories flashed in Bernadette's mind. It's easy to imagine that she recalled all the times Kirsten had put her down. At that moment, Bernadette wanted to hurt her, to make Kirsten feel all the pain she dished out over the last two years. Bernadette brought the knife out from behind her back and stabbed Kirsten again and again. Kirsten fell to the ground, her screams echoing off the nearby houses. Dark red stains bloomed across her torn clothes. Then, she somehow staggered to her feet, stumbling away as blood gushed from her wounds. In a split second, Bernadette's rage turned to horror. She couldn't believe what she'd just done. She knew she had to get as far away as she could before anyone else found them. She sprinted back to the Pinto and raced away into the night. But it wasn't a clean getaway. Because back at the scene of the crime, Alex Arnold was still sitting in his car. And he'd seen the entire bloody encounter. Coming up, Bernadette hides in plain sight. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now, back to the story. On the night of June 23, 1984, Arthur Hillman heard screaming from outside his home. When he opened the front door, he found his neighbor, 15-year-old Kirsten Costas, covered in knife wounds. Arthur ran towards her and pressed his shaking hands to the gashes, trying to staunch her bleeding. He screamed for his son to call 911. He tried to reassure Kirsten that help was on the way, but words failed him. 
Arthur whipped his head around, searching for someone to help, but all he saw was an unfamiliar car speeding away. Within minutes, the street was swarming with emergency personnel. Kirsten was loaded into an ambulance and rushed to the nearest hospital, with her family following close behind. A pale-faced Arthur stood on his front porch and gave a statement to investigators. His shirt stained a deep red. Just as he was describing the car he saw, it pulled up to the curb in front of his house. For a second, the police thought they'd gotten extremely lucky and caught the suspect circling back to gloat. What they got instead was the next best thing, an eyewitness. Alex Arnold had returned. After watching the violent scene unfold in front of him, he'd chased after Kirsten's attacker. He followed the beat-up Ford Pinto around a few twists and turns, but eventually lost sight of it. Worried about what might have happened to Kirsten, he decided to go back and check on her. Alex gave as much of a description of the assailant as he could. According to him, the authorities should look for another girl around 15 or 16 years old with long, stringy blonde hair. But the information did little to narrow down the search. He could have been describing just about every girl in Orinda, and while officers got to work canvassing the scene, they received some devastating news from the hospital. Kirsten had succumbed to her injuries and was pronounced dead on arrival. The case was officially ruled a homicide. The hunt for a killer was on. While the investigation got underway, Bernadette raced home. Her mind reeled. She couldn't believe that she'd just stabbed Kirsten Costas. She knew Kirsten was hurt pretty badly, but clung to the hope that she was still alive. Although, if Kirsten did survive, Bernadette would have so much more to worry about than her reputation. But her mind didn't let her go there, at least not yet. By the time Bernadette got home, it was pretty late. She took a walk with her mom and the family dog. Afterward, she crawled into bed full of terror over what the morning would bring. Surprisingly, the next day started out pretty normal. She sat down to breakfast with her family feeling calm, normal almost, with the news playing quietly in the background. She had almost convinced herself the previous night was all a bad dream. But then she heard from her friend, Gigi. Kirsten's name was all over the news. She had been stabbed to death. The news hit Bernadette like a ton of bricks. Something inside her shut down as if a switch had been flipped in her brain. Suddenly, everything felt like it was happening to someone else. Even as she sat listening to the description of the suspect, Bernadette didn't process that the reporters were talking about her. She couldn't accept it. It's possible Bernadette was experiencing paratraumatic dissociation. Essentially, this is a defense mechanism in which the mind disconnects from reality during or after trauma. It's often reported by perpetrators of violent crimes. One of the symptoms is dissociative amnesia or a loss of memory surrounding a traumatic event. Basically, to protect itself from total collapse, Bernadette's mind cut off the part of her that knew the truth. Which is likely how she was able to attend Kirsten's memorial just five days after the murder. 
she blended right in with all the other grieving teenagers, sharing stories and memories of their lost friend. Inevitably, conversations turned to speculations about suspects, but Bernadette's mental block never faltered. She even stayed calm when the sheriff's department brought her in for an interview. It probably helped that she wasn't specifically a person of interest. The truth was, investigators had precious little evidence to go on. In the weeks following the murder, deputies spoke to hundreds of blonde teen girls in the area. From her very first interview, Bernadette was the picture of cooperation. She answered all the questions calmly and without much emotion. She and some of the other girls who'd been in Kirsten's social circle were asked to take a polygraph test. Bernadette passed with flying colors. As far as her whereabouts on the night in question, Bernadette told the police she'd been babysitting. At the time, no one followed up to make sure that was the truth. They even dismissed the fact that her family owned a pinto that matched the witness's description. For the rest of the summer, Bernadette went about her life as usual. It appeared she had the police, the community, even herself, completely fooled. While she ignored the truth, the rest of Orinda became desperate for answers. For many, Kirsten symbolized the very best of their city, the ideal they all strove for. Her death felt like an attack on their very way of life and left many fearful that someone else would be next. One thing most agreed on was that the killer couldn't possibly be one of them. It had to have been an outsider. Rumors and gossip spread like wildfire, sending police on several wild goose chases. But in the end, they always ended up back at square one. By the time summer faded into fall, there were still no developments. Some kids were nervous about going back to school, worried the killer was walking the halls of Miramonte High. And she was. Bernadette returned to Miramonte for her junior year as if nothing had happened. In fact, she was poised to have her best year yet with Kirsten now out of the picture. But any excitement she might have felt was short-lived. Though she was dead, Kirsten's presence still loomed large on campus. All anyone wanted to talk about was her murder. Bernadette went along with it, speculating like everyone else. On the outside, she seemed just as confused and upset as the rest of them. But inside, Bernadette's careful compartmentalization began to crack under the pressure. Potentially making matters worse, in November of 1984, she took part in the sacrament of confirmation at her family's church. Her parents were so proud, going on and on about what a good person she was. All of that made it harder to hold the truth at bay, Bernadette was lying to everyone, her family, her friends, and the police. The dissociative walls her mind had likely built were crumbling, and she started to feel the crushing weight of her terrible secret. She contemplated taking her own life. Ultimately, she confessed the killing to a priest in an attempt to carry on. In the meantime, after months of slogging through the details, Tracing and retracing their steps, the Contra Costa Sheriff's Department had exhausted all of their resources. They needed backup, so they brought in the big guns. 
The San Francisco office of the FBI stepped in to help, ordering a criminal profile from their unit at Quantico. Creating a psychological sketch of the killer was still a relatively new concept, and the process took months. In December, investigators finally received a 14-page document. It was even more detailed than they'd hoped. According to the experts, the killer was from a large Catholic family and lived in or very close to Orinda. They were someone Kirsten knew, yet they wouldn't be likely to show signs of remorse or emotion. One name sprang to the minds of the detectives who'd been working this case for six long months, Bernadette Prati. The thing was, they'd already cleared her as a suspect, or so they thought. When they finally followed up on her alibi, they realized it wasn't true. They'd been had. On Friday, December 8th, they asked Bernadette to come in for another interview, this time with FBI interrogators present. Just like before, Bernadette showed little to no emotion. They questioned her for nearly five hours, even showing her the psych profile, but still, they couldn't get her to confess. It might not have looked like it from the outside, but Bernadette's cage was definitely rattled. She spent the weekend contemplating what to do, already drowning in guilt. It's likely she was scared of what would happen to her next, terrified of everyone finding out that she was the monster they'd all been hunting. But she couldn't take the lying anymore. She wrote her parents a note confessing to everything and begging their forgiveness. She left it out on the kitchen counter Tuesday morning before leaving for school. When her mom read it, she immediately picked Bernadette up. Together with her parents, Bernadette went back to the sheriff's department. After recording her confession, which lasted over 90 minutes, she was arrested. Word spread quickly that an arrest had finally been made. When people found out Bernadette was the killer... It shocked the public almost as much as the murder itself. She had been right under their noses the entire time. And she was one of them. Worse, she was supposed to have been Kirsten's friend. The sense of betrayal ran deep. The court of public opinion handed down a swift verdict. Bernadette was an outlier, a sick, troubled girl, which meant the murder was an isolated incident and reflected nothing about the community as a whole. And they expected the actual court to back them up. So when Bernadette's lawyer approached the prosecution with a plea deal, they were denied outright. The prosecutor said it was because of the charge. The defense offered second-degree murder, but the district attorney's office felt they had enough evidence to prove first degree. The DA also knew better than to deny the people a public trial. A district attorney was an elected position after all, and the last vote wasn't far behind him. A report in the Oakland Tribune speculated that the wealthy people of Orinda were not a demographic he was willing to risk upsetting. And so, the show would go on. The trial finally started in March of 1985. As expected, it was a massive spectacle. Every day, hundreds of people, mostly teens, lined up outside of the courtroom, hoping to get a front row seat. Many of them were turned away. For others, it was standing room only. 
After the three days of proceedings, the judge found Bernadette guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced her to nine years in a maximum security juvenile facility. Seeming to acknowledge the shaky reasoning behind rejecting the plea bargain, he commented that the entire affair bothered him. He could only hope that it all meant something more than morbid entertainment. And indeed, the public hearing did nothing to help the Prati and Costas families heal, or the city for that matter. The citizens of Orinda had a particular vision of themselves, and Bernadette came dangerously close to tarnishing it. Yet, the pressure to live up to those standards may just be what pushed her to her breaking point in the first place. In the end, obsession with perfection and status cost one girl her promising future, and the other, tragically, her life. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next week with another episode. For more information on Kirsten Costas and Bernadette Prati, we found the cheerleader murder from the Discovery Channel extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Brauro. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, edited by Sara Hussein and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez. Research by Chelsea Wood and Mickey Taylor. Produced by Aaron Larson. With sound designed by Scott Stronach. I'm your host, Lainey Hobbs. Hey, Parcast fans. It's Lainey from Crimes of Passion. Can't get enough true crime? Check out my podcast, True Crime Cases with Lainey. I'm diving deep into the stories you've never heard, and deeper into those you may be familiar with. I hope you'll join me. Follow True Crime Cases with Lainey wherever you get your podcasts.